Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Dharma Toolkit podcast with me, Chandra Dasa. And today, I'm happy to say my friend and colleague, Sadai Sihi, who will be saying hello in a little minute. This is the second or third, depending on how you count it, in our little mini-series on, I suppose, what you might say, something like beauty as a response to the current crisis. It's been one of the themes that's come up consistently is the need for people to connect imaginatively both with their own deeper levels, but also with each other, particularly when they're isolated at home. And then out of those conversations has come a bit of an emphasis on poetry, on the arts, on image making, and in a way, non-functional responses to the moment. We're aware through that that lots of people have quite serious, quite challenging situations at the moment, including situations that involve sickness, death even, some real suffering. And in some ways, that's made these conversations feel that bit more urgent. Reality seems a bit closer to everybody. We had a great conversation. We hope you listened to it with Padma Chandra and some of her friends about poetry and the need to respond. She described it as there's a river under the river. That was her image for a mode of response to what's happening at the moment. There's a river under the river. And Padma Chandra has curated this little series of conversations for us to go deeper into that particular river. She was intended to be here today. Unfortunately, she's had to go north to look after her mum, who needs some help. She'll be back in the third and final episode that she's pulled together. But I'm very happy to say that we have a great guest today, our friend Nagasidi, who's an image maker, an artist. I've known him for quite a long time, on and off, and seen some of his work, which is fantastic. We'll get to hear about that in a minute. But first of all, hi to you, Sadaisihi. How is Dublin this fair day in spring? Hi Chandra Dasa. Yeah, well, all's well in Dublin. It's quite warm today. And yeah, I'm quite well. Yeah, I'm just feeling more refreshed. And yeah, I also, well, I've been in contact a little bit with Padma Chandra, who came up with this exciting proposal to have a couple of podcasts with people who are artists and poets and generally creative people. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to the conversation today, which is this very rich and interesting title around the imagination. So looking forward to hearing a little bit more about Naga City's world, because I've seen some of his artwork. I saw some at the Border Convention at the summer, which was really, really exciting and yeah, magical. That's probably what I'd say. I'm not really much of a, an artist appreciator, really, but I think what I saw made me feel like it was magical and something from a different realm. So. Magical is a very good word for it, actually. That's something I associate with his work. So let's say hello to our guest today, Nagasidi. Where are you, Nagasidi? How are you doing? And what does your world look like beyond the magical? Hello there. Thank you very much for inviting me on today. I'm in a village called Forest Row, which is in southern England, on the edge of the Ashdown Forest. I live in a small flat with my partner, another order member called Randarava, who's also an artist. And we both work at Rivendell Retreat Centre, which is about a 20-minute drive from where we are now. Well, we were working at a Buddhist retreat centre, a Buddhist retreat centre that's closed for the foreseeable future because of the COVID-19 crisis. Yeah, it's a very beautiful day here. It's very peaceful. It's very quiet. I live in the countryside. In some ways, it's almost hard to know that there's a crisis going on, Uh, apart from the fact it's eerily quiet. We're near Gatwick Airport, so normally there's aeroplanes flying over and there's no aeroplanes. We're near a main road and there's no noise from the traffic. So it's very peaceful and very quiet. You'd not know the world was turned upside down right now if you looked out of my window. So everybody, your loved ones, etc., your family, they're all safe and well and 
Do you know, right? Yes, I'm very fortunate that so far everyone I know is okay. I've got friends who are very much on the front line of it all in the NHS. And in a way, I feel kind of my role is to kind of support them really as best I can. And emotionally, I've I've got other friends who had kind of difficulties. So I'm trying to be there for them. I've been in quite a lot of contact with my friends. Good to hear you're well. Good to hear everything's well. But it's interesting doing these podcasts because I quite often know people from the past. And I know a fair bit about your background as an artist and, and where you've come from, just from things you've told me over the years and your work. You were saying in one of your notes does that you're not into spending that much time on the internet generally at the moment. I'm interested in why you were able to respond to Pamachandra's request to sort of take part in something and what was it about story, image making, symbol, etc. that resonated? I have to say I've always been slightly allergic to the internet and technology. It's really not my natural realm. Funnily enough, there's a little anecdote. I don't know if this is too long, but I'll give it a go. And I can't even pronounce the main protagonist's name, so that might be slightly problematic. But I was reading a thing about, I think it's Bartoli, the Italian cyclist, very famous Italian cyclist, and very moving article about what he did during the war, during the Second World War. And he continued to cycle during the war. It wasn't sort of known until afterwards, I think quite close to when he died, that during those cycle rides, he was actually delivering false papers to Jews all around northern Italy, Aryan papers to save them. And it's estimated that he saved 800 people, which I find incredibly moving. And he did this while he was cycling around and he was such a famous cyclist that no one would stop him. And after the war, someone sort of said, well, what did you do during the war? And he said, I did the only thing that I'm any good at. I cycled. And it really struck me that in a way, we've all got our kind of gifts. You know, there are people out there doing incredible work in the NHS, working incredibly hard and doing all sorts of other tasks to keep the society going. And in some way, my kind of role, my job, I'm not saving anyone's life, only stretch the imagination. But I think artists help make sense of our experience images words poems they help make sense of our experience so i kind of feel my little contribution to the conversation is the making of images hopefully meaningful images that have some sort of resonance with people so yeah instead of cycling i'm making art and it felt if by me talking about that that helped other people then that feels like a good thing to do. And what's your training as an artist? What was your background? Where did your practice as an artist in the way get its foundation of discipline and training? I think it probably began in my loft as a child with my model railway. I think that was probably where it started. I then later went to art college. It really was the only thing I was any good at. So I was fortunate I was able to go and study sculpture. I did a kind of technical sculpture degree. It involved things like learning bronze casting and welding and mould making. It was quite traditional in its way, quite traditional skills. And then, in a way, my real apprenticeship, I think, as an artist was I ended up working as a prop maker in the theatre. I made scenery and furniture and all sorts of wild, wonderful things professionally in the theatre for a number of years. And that really extended my skills base because I do everything from welding to upholstery to, you know, making special effects and all sorts of things. And then I kind of ended a second apprenticeship in that my partner is a puppet maker. She's a storyteller and a puppet maker and an artist herself. 
And she introduced me to a man called John Roberts, who's one of the leading puppet makers in the country, if not the world. And for a number of years, I've studied with him. And I kind of did another apprenticeship. I've learned a huge amount from John, John Roberts. He's an incredible man, an incredible teacher. So he was kind of my uh, postgraduate training, as it were. That's really interesting. I'm just kind of wondering, could you describe what kind of art that you create? I know you mentioned that your background is in sculpture and what does the artistic process look like for you from the beginning to the creative process to the end result even? Interesting. I think what I make is is a kind of synthesis of all the things that I've talked about in that there's an element of the model railway in them. There's an element of my training as a sculptor. There's an element of I think it's quite a big element, my career as a prop maker. There's something slightly kind of theatrical about what I do. And also the puppet making. It's traditional technique of wood carving puppets that I've learned, and that feeds in. So I make little wooden objects, mainly wood. I sometimes use other material, whatever's to hand. Actually, there's another sort of strand to all this in that for the last 20 years, I've lived and worked in retreat centres and I've done a lot of property maintenance during that time. So I use kind of old bits of plumbing and things and some of the skills that I've learned doing property maintenance. So it all kind of feeds in together and creates this kind of strange hybrid of all those things. So I make these objects mainly out of wood. Sometimes they're constructed, sometimes they're carved. They use other materials. They look a little bit like strange 1950s handmade toys that somebody's granddad has made in the shed. I think might be a fair description of what I make. And they're they're a little bit surreal. They're a little bit strange. Where they come from is normally I just kind of get an image just pops into my head of something. Sometimes it's quite clear. Sometimes it kind of evolves. And in the making of them, I sort of reflect on the image and the kind of more cognitive aspect, kind of meaning, the kind of associations that comes later. It's not unimportant, but I always try and stick with the image. I think with art, it's very, very important that art just doesn't become an illustration of an idea. I think an awful lot of art, particularly contemporary art, is an illustration of an idea. You don't really need to actually look at the thing on some level. You could just read a bit of paper and it would it would serve. So I hope that what I make essentially is an image and that image has a sort of resonance with the viewer. I was also just wondering about the significance of the material you use. So I know you mentioned you use things from around the retreat centre that you used to work at or work at. But I'm just wondering about, you You also said that you use wood. And is there significance particularly to using wood as a material? Yep. Yes, there is actually. The more I think about this, the more I can see the whole sort of strands of my life kind of coming together, like a bit of rope making or something. In that my father was a carpenter and he had his own small carpentry business and my brother's a carpenter as well. And I had a Saturday job all through my childhood cleaning his workshop. And it's very strong, actually, that link between my father and me. My father's sadly dead now, but he he is with me quite strongly. When he died, I inherited most of the contents of his workshop, both in terms of tools and bits of wood. It's quite poignant sometimes. Occasionally I find a piece of wood which still has his handwriting on it or some numbers 
you know, from a calculation or something, which is very poignant. And he had a sort of work jacket that I still wear, and it really does connect me to him. But I, I really love wood. I, I really, there's something about wood that has a resonance with me very strongly. I find it a beautiful material to work with. I particularly like to use old secondhand wood, wood that's had a bit of history and a bit of life to it. Just listening to you talk about wood and your relationship to your father, I'm remembering some of the correspondence around this episode again, where your partner Mandarva was talking about building a kind of forest, almost a sort of magic imagined forest, that sense of, well, one of the things that's come up in the podcast around poetry was that you effectively go and live inside of your images. That's almost the only way to kind of make it meaningful enough. There's the Bread and Puppet Theatre Company. I don't know if you're familiar with oh, yeah. them. Yeah, Peter Schumann, who founded them in the... 60s in New York. They're now based a bit closer to where I live on the east coast of the US and a friend of mine did some training with them and they have this whole thing about theatre being a form of religion that you basically have to go and completely inhabit and their puppets are basically about that. They're like beings and they take wood and they make puppets and they make beings. It's almost like the act of creation, decreation, you know. And I'm sort of wondering about that with you and, and Mandarva living in, in lockdown and just immersing yourselves, living inside your practice as artists. Yes, yes, very much so. I mean, we are quite literally. So we live in this one bedroom flat and I'm very lucky in that I have a studio underneath in the basement of the building where the flat's located. And so first thing in the morning, I get up and I go down there and I spend most of the day down there. I come up for a cup of tea or a meal and then I'm back down there again. Mandava, on the other hand, is building an enchanted forest in our living room so negotiating our way across the living room involves yeah making one's way through a magical forest that is inhabited by puppet animals and uh, she's doing a very beautiful painting of a backdrop she has a theater background as well she was a scene painter in the theater amongst other things and then we go out for a walk together and we invariably end up talking about our work and what we're doing and so we are very much immersed in our work and in the world to the extent that sometimes and I know a few people have experienced this during the lockdown that it can feel a little bit like being on a retreat in the sense that stepping out of that world can be quite sort of jarring at times I've I've found there's a few emails and things I've not responded to and I feel quite internal at the moment it's internal and it's being with the images but it's interesting that the images that I'm making and this wasn't conscious but the images that I'm making are referring to what's going on in the world very much so so it's not like I feel like I'm in some sort of fantasy in that the work is being very strongly informed by what's going on but not consciously it seems to be coming through unconsciously we were talking with Padma Chandra about location where images are located also with Subhadasi the other day we were talking about poetry I'm sort of struck listening to you like following on from what Stacey he said about making things out of wood does the magic imaginable forest that's spreading across your living room presumably between you and where you want to get to but you're going through the forest and you're going out on walks near the new forest you were saying earlier on there's an image isn't there about the forest where it's you know dante's thing of you begin in the middle of the dark wood yes that that's your sort of location as a as an artist as somebody trying to respond and the dark wood is threatening it's also beautiful it's truly wild all of that i think the thing about any creative process is the sense of being lost 
And I think it's quite interesting in relation to what's going on with COVID-19. Is It's like humanity, we've walked into this unknown space where we literally don't know what's going on. Nobody knows what's going on. And we, we're used to a world where particularly politicians and people in power reassure the public we know what's going on, you know. There are adults in the room. We know what's going on. We will tell you and follow us. And this is no disrespect to anybody, but everybody is off the map, isn't there? There is, as as somebody said to me the other day, this is everyone's first pandemic. There is no map to this. We're all lost in the forest and in humanity's infinitely varied ways. We're all trying to work our way across that forest, whether that's how do you homeschool your children? How do you come up with a vaccine? Or how do you socially distance and keep a supermarket open? And interestingly, all these require creativity, don't they? I find it really, really interesting how phenomenally creative people are being. I was sent a very sweet video the other day of this whole puppet theatre, some friends of mine and their small child had made in their back garden, you know, and it's the sort of creativity that I think has come out of the crisis. There's something about that lostness and something about not being able to sort of unconsciously slip into the familiar that actually brings in consciousness and it brings in creativity to all aspects of life, really. One thing that I've done is I've sort of decided not to do any online shopping in terms of materials and things, to only use what I've got in the workshop right now. My glue levels are now getting dangerously low. But I found it really interesting that it's forced me to be much more economical, much more creative. You know, I'm faced with an issue. I think, oh, I need a piece of metal and I've got no piece of metal. And then I think, well, where am I going to get a piece of metal like that from? And almost magically, it seems to have turned up in some strange way. There's something very positive about that. Just listening to you speak, it's making me think, well, maybe it's the enchanted forest that's sprung up in your living room. It's really evoking something to me of fairy tales. And there's something you said as well at the beginning about the image speaking for itself and not necessarily needing to have some sort of conceptual description in order to understand it. And then this whole idea of stories. I think there's something about what you're saying as well about being lost, that we don't really know how this is going to unfold And somehow stories feel more essential and not the kind of news stories that we're hearing a lot of the updates on how things are scientifically happening, but the sort of more human stories or the more even mythical archetypal stories and like the fairy tales. and What's the meaning in all of those? Well, the art that speaks to me is the art that has those sort of allusions to things, but without any sense of the definitive. So one image is coming to mind. I remember coming across an art gallery in, in Dublin. It's just this image of a, a little girl in the forest and, you know, big trees. And I think maybe there was a bird and that was it. And I can't even explain why it spoke to me, but I think maybe it's that it was a forest and forests sort of mean something in my mind in terms of fairy tales and magic and mystery and the unknown. But there's no answer there. And I suppose in a way that kind of seems sort of very current and resonates quite a lot that Maybe it's a way of being with the uncertainties to create something like that that is beautiful. I think the thing about images, and I should clarify when I use the term images, a story is an image, a poem is an image. I don't just mean a visual image. Imagination, it's an image nation. It's a nation of images, the imagination. 
I think the important thing is the psychologist James Hillman would always say, stay with the image. And we can have a bit of a habit, particularly in the West, of we don't stay with the image, we go to interpretation. The nadir of this is those dream dictionaries that kind of say, I don't know, a dog is loyalty. You know, if you dream about a dog, loyalty is an issue for you. Well, dogs can be loyal, they can be loyal, they can bite you. You know, they can run around in circles, they can chase the tail. A dog can be a myriad of different things. So the important thing is to stay, in this particular example, stay with the image of the dog or the little girl in the forest in your experience in the gallery, just really dwelling on, meditating, reflecting on that image and let the image be on its own terms rather than imposing an interpretation on it from the outside. Because the cognitive mind wants certainty it wants answers it wants clarity and that's fair enough in certain aspects of life that's really really important you know if someone's performing brain surgery they need clarity and they need to know what they're doing and that works perfectly but in other aspects of life it's not helpful and i think in our inner lives our imaginative lives the lives of our meditation practice or our dream life or our emotional life it's sort of honoring the images in a way giving them the respect they're due and meeting them on their own terms almost like you're meeting a stranger or you've gone to some strange foreign land and you're meeting the locals as it were and you approach them with respect and certain humility and you let them speak on their own terms I think it's quite an interesting thing with artists that a lot of artists talk about the muse as inspiration and this notion that it's sort of somehow outside of yourself it comes from sort of beyond somewhere it's not part of your ego you don't create it it's more like you're fishing in that underground river or the river under the river or you're listening to that river I mean that's what Philip Glass said wasn't it he said music was listening to the underground river he just listened to the underground river and that's the music that he creates he doesn't sort of produce it it comes out of his listening to the underground river so this idea of the sort of muse helps I think keep the ego in check in a way because that's always the danger of any artistic process is that it becomes appropriated by the ego and it becomes about the individual rather than the sort of humility of listening again egos are absolutely fine it's important to have a healthy sense of self poor old ego gets the hard time but they're completely necessary to get through the day you need an ego you need a sense of self but there's also a sense of openness to something beyond oneself which I think is incredibly important and yeah to honour those images I think just by dwelling on them and to get back to what Chandra Dasa was saying about theatre and puppetry and religion you know there's a whole argument that theatre did come out of Greek ritual and theatre is an incredibly ritualised process as is looking at art or visiting an art gallery they are kind of temples in their way But I think by creating the image that appears or writing it down or honouring it in some way, by manifesting it in the world, it then becomes a kind of communication. And I think really great art does have that kind of slightly totemic quality to it. I'm just wondering about this thing of, well, I suppose the experience of lostness and the experience of not knowing what things mean in a kind of literal way. Hillman talks, doesn't he, in The Dream in the Underworld about that thing of not jumping past your present experience of confusion and lostness to 
impose an ending. That's why you shouldn't take your images in your dreams, literally. Yes. For me, this week I've been having this experience with a particular story, Diana Wynne-Jones' story, The Hell's Moving Castle, which was made into a movie by Studio Ghibli in Japan. And oh, yeah. there's, a, there's a really amazing section of it which made me think of this, about how difficult it is to stay with lostness and with the underworld river. Hillman talks about it's so far under the earth, it's as far under the earth as the sky is above the earth. That's how strange it feels and how disconcerted you should be when you're there. And there's this scene where a boy apprentice to a magician takes literally John Donne's poem, Go and Catch a Falling Star, and he thinks it's a magic spell that he can master. And in the poem, this is a set of impossible questions and tasks like Go and Catch a Falling Star, Get with Child a Mandrake's Root. So the boy dutifully goes off and tries to find all the elements and he ends up chasing with Sophie, the lead character, a falling star. And what's amazing about it is it's all very charming. But then suddenly there's a scene where they're actually going to catch the star and the star turns around and speaks to them and says, no, I have to die. I'm supposed to die. That's what this is for. And it's like, you know, when you take images, literally that's what happens. You know, you don't want to face the impermanence in them or something. Yes. Yeah. There's an interesting parallel, I think, in the creative process in that you have to go into it without a fixed outcome because whatever you're working on may go in directions that you don't expect. And you have to honour the process of the making because although, like, for example, I say an image comes to me and I try and manifest that, but there's then a process in the manifestation. It's not like I'm making a replica of something that's appeared in my head. It feels like I'm giving birth to something. And that thing has a life of its own, just as a child has its own life. And sometimes it is interesting you you talk about a death. For example, you can put an awful lot of work into something or a particular aspect of something, and it has to go. You know, there's this famous phrase, was it from David Mamet, the playwright, about killing kittens. Sometimes it feels like killing kittens. You've got this thing that you've lovingly made or created And it doesn't actually work in the bigger scheme of things. I used to experience this a lot when prop making, working in theatre, you'd maybe spend weeks making something and then the director or the designer would realise that, you know, the actors were just tripping over it or it was in the way or the audience couldn't see over the top of it. And you literally either had to sort of cut the top of it off. I literally had to do that once with a piano. I spent weeks making a reproduction piano and then they realised that the actor who stood behind it couldn't see over the top of it. And it had all this incredibly ornate work on the top of it. And I had to just literally chop a whole foot off the top of this thing. And sometimes you have to do that with your own artwork. Yeah, it's quite a painful process, but you have to do it. You have to do it. Kill your sons, that whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Underground. yeah. Hmm. I'm interested in staying with the experience of lostness. Because obviously for a lot of people, they don't imagine that they have a creative response. I think you're right that how to keep a supermarket open is a creative response, but they may not relate in these kind of terms. And for a lot of people, it's almost like we don't always know how to be confused. We don't know how to be in the state of lostness. What's it like for you when you're lost in your work in a way that feels like you're up against it rather than just the beautiful, you know, easier side of inspiration, etc.? I experienced my entire creative life as being lost. I mean, it's not something in some ways that comes naturally to me. I experience a huge amount of self-doubt about what I do. I question it all the time on just about every level. And sometimes that's helpful and sometimes it's just plain self-destructive. But I think the creative process, the importance of the creative process is that you are 
always going into the unknown. You're always going off the map. To go back to my career as a prop maker, one of the interesting things about being a prop maker was you'd be asked to make things like I had to make this special effect once of a coffin that kind of disappeared. It had to kind of disappear. And it had Sue Johnson, the actress in it, from the royal family in Brookside and various other probably far too English references. But anyway, basically, she was the Virgin Mary and she was going to ascend to heaven. And she was in the coffin. And as the coffin ascended to heaven on top of a forklift truck, like you do, the director wanted the coffin to just disappear and she would magically appear. So I had to make this coffin that just sort of disappeared at the flick of a switch. And it ended up very hard to describe. But if you imagine like a cardboard box that was held together under tension and the moment you released it, the whole thing just sort of flopped open. Well, that's what I ended up making. But there's no there's no school for making disappearing coffins. There's no kind of course at university on disappearing coffins. Actually saying all this, there's probably now a video on YouTube, isn't there, about how to make a disappearing coffin. You could probably now look that up and there will be some handy, there will be, you know, Zach in Wisconsin of Zach's autos and it'll teach you how to make a disappearing coffin. But you constantly just had to make it up. And in a way, I found that training incredibly useful for all aspects of my life, actually, funny enough, running retreat centres and particularly looking after them. It was just like if something broke, I just had to sort of work it out. Everything becomes just the same process. In a way, there's no difference. You just work it out. It takes quite a lot of confidence and trust in yourself to allow yourself to go to those places where you don't know what you're doing. I mean, obviously, you don't do things that are going to put you or anyone else at risk. You know, don't think, oh, gas appliances, I'll work that out. Leave that to the experts. But there is an element of just working it out and play, actually. I think maybe that's important of why play is important. You see it with children all the time when they play. They're just working it out. No one's given them the rule book of play. They just work it out. In the house I live in, there's two small boys, and I'm constantly amazed at their inventiveness, particularly at the moment, you know, because they haven't got much to hand. They will seem to be able to make a bicycle assault course out of just about anything. It's really quite incredible what they produce. So there's something about the creative process being that constant stepping into the unknown, off the map, having a certain responsiveness to what's in front of you that then leads to the next step, to the next step, to the next step, and it's trusting that process. But it is frightening. I think it is genuinely frightening because you don't know what you're doing. You don't know where you're going. You do wonder what you're doing. I mean, I think every artist probably knows that feeling. You just wonder, what am I doing? This is no way for a grown human being to spend their time. But then I have the experience that people respond to what I make. They buy what I want to make occasionally. They want to look at what I make and it has some kind of resonance with them. It helps them make sense of their experience and helps create in the manifestation of meaning. Just responding to this idea of being off the map and working it out, it, it really strikes me as so relevant right now when we're all at home. I mean, I've been having so many conversations with people about we're having to reimagine things like people's birthday coming up and how are we going to celebrate the birthday? Usually you do X. Well, that's not possible now. And in some cases, we can't even see each other, you know, other than online. And it feels like there is calling up for something. And it definitely feels actually it's calling up the imaginative 
either being creative in what you're doing or having to be creative in terms of imagining people being with you or things like that. It just feels like, oh, well, those skills that you've gained from your years of artistry will be so useful for many people. I mean, I was also thinking, you know, maybe in terms of children. I mean, I don't have children myself, but all the usual toys, I imagine people are so keen to get outside these days because it's now what seldom is wonderful, that maybe this will encourage people to use their imaginations more because external stimuli have really shrunk so much. Yes, I think that's very true. Another aspect of it is the house I live in split up into different flats. And there's an element of cooperation and sharing and communality by necessity. And that's really lovely, actually. That's really, really lovely to see that we realise we are all interconnected intimately, even though we're socially distancing, we're still intimately and we're all completely dependent on one another emotionally, physically. The current situation does heighten all that. I was just thinking, listening to you, Stacey, here, that this is why people end up at Buddha centres. It's the meaning, the meaning thing that you were saying, that you find in your work and that people find in your work, negativity, but also we need, we need community alongside meaning. They just seem to go together. I suppose as Buddhists, that's one of the things that we usually provide and then suddenly all the buildings are closed and we've got things like this, which are amazing, these kind of tools where you can actually see each other and hear each other and make media products out of it etc but it doesn't actually work unless you can jump the gap i'm struck with this thing of you making these wooden figures out of old bits of wood including some that your dad had and they become living beings and there's a process in that that is slightly analogous i feel to this even you're not actually a two-dimensional set of colored pixels on my screen you're this being and there is an imaginative thing and then later people will just hear our voices they won't even see our faces and it's like the thing about radio where it transforms the world because people jump out of their own context into another context. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that art does, doesn't it? It gives another perspective. It's another way of viewing the world. And you could say, this is a bold statement, but I think on the one level, all suffering comes from getting trapped in a fixed perspective on something. And it's a perspective that doesn't allow room for manoeuvre or it becomes a fixed narrative. And those narratives can lead us down a cul-de-sac. And I've certainly do this myself and I continue to. And then something will come in that will offer an alternative. And then it's almost like a door has opened at the end of a dead-end street, which is interesting because I realise that's a line from a psychedelic furs song from my childhood. So that artist, Richard Butler, who's also a very good painter, from my adolescent listening to psychedelic furs song, he's given me an image which is now 30 years later, 30 plus years later, is now emerging in this podcast, which is going out and then being heard by other people. And that might mean something to them. It might have a resonance. And that's the thing about images. That's an image in the form of a line from a song. But that's the beauty. You know, just that image gives the possibility of something else. And that's what creativity does. Which gives me a good excuse to link to the new Psychedelic Furs album and the show notes for today's episode. They haven't made a record for a very long time. They haven't made a record for very, very long. This is the first time I've heard it. 
they made a new record which got you know served to me on the great cloud jukebox that now is our bass go loud and it was that same experience of thinking oh that's that voice you know the particular voice that probably most people know from pretty and pink right just that very unique vocal that he has and it's got older I was listening to it thinking, I was having all my kind of childhood resonances with my little heart kind of beat out of my chest for a second because I was like, oh my goodness, that's him. And then I could hear how his voice has got weathered and yeah. it's been made old by time, right? There's just this familiarity, but also this quite bittersweet experience of thinking, oh, and that's happening to me. You know, that's that's happening to my memories, my references, yeah. my life, you know. Richard Butler is a very, very good painter. It's worth checking his paintings out. He's a very accomplished painter. I mean, they're an art college band. Maybe as a final question, I guess, given that we're lost in the great wood, in the dark wood, and in a way that's the natural state of things, but it's a bit closer on all sides at the moment. It's not clear where the path is. If it's an answerable question, what do you think's next for you in terms of your own image making as a way of pathfinding and tracking your way through the wood? It's interesting you're highlighting the image of being lost in the forest because in some ways my own personal experience at the moment is I do feel quite lost in the forest and wider, in a sense, than the immediate crisis. And there's a certain level of trust, I think, there's a level of trusting the images and trusting the making of the images that will lead somewhere. I mean, for me personally, it's getting the images out there into the world and, yeah, getting the work seen by other people. That's incredibly important. I mean, some artists don't really seem to care whether their work is seen. But for me, there's something very, very important that the work is seen and that people resonate with it. I mean, that's why I do it in a way. If this doesn't sound too pretentious, they are kind of gifts. You don't do it for the money. You don't do it for the acclaim. You just make stuff and people hopefully respond to it. My experience is fortunately people have responded very positively to some of the things I've made and they've had real resonances. I mean, my hope is that I always have this fantasy that maybe someone's, I don't know why, but it's a bit embarrassing, but I'll say it anyway, but I, I have this image of somebody maybe having some kind of personal crisis or something and they're with their therapist and they're trying to explain this mysterious inner process that's going on or something that's a bit formless. And they might go, it's a bit like this sculpture I once saw and they'll describe something I've made and then the other person will understand that person a bit more or help them understand themselves a bit more and it'll provide that kind of bridge. Kiki Smith, the American artist, said art is a bridge to the unseen and I really love that. Art is a bridge to the unseen and I just hope I'm part of that collective endeavour really to continually build the bridge to the unseen. That's great. It just reminds me of the Buddhist text, the Bodhicharya Vatara, which is quite often studied in our community. Shantideva talks about may I be a bridge, a path, a causeway mm. for people to cross over. Yeah. Whatever that looks like. It seems like a very noble aspiration actually rather than a fantasy. Yeah, it's interesting that bridges, boats, ladders, those kind of means of connecting different worlds, different realms appear quite a lot in my work as a recurring motif. Well, if you ever realised your dream of getting an Instagram page up, like I said, we will totally link to it. So that well, it might see it your work. may happen in the next day or so. This is me to that actually is my next big project is getting myself out there really. Hey, it's nice. I think that makes us influencers. We're officially Instagram yeah. influencers now. <laughs> we'll just take 10%. That's fine. 
Lovely. Well, listen, thanks for taking the time to talk to us about your work. It just feels like we've wandered into the little grove of trees just at the entranceway to the forest with you, but it's a glimpse of something very beautiful. Oh, it's been lovely to do. I feel quite privileged to come and talk to you about meaningful things and things that mean a lot to me. So thank you very much for inviting me. And thanks to you too, Stacey. It does feel like we should put up a little tent in the forest and then get some other people to come over and Nag City can wander back, maybe bring Mandarvan or Puppets with her. And... Yeah, I'm getting such a lovely image of your living room at the moment. I really would love to see a picture of what that looks like. Okay. Maybe on Instagram. Thanks very much, Nag City. I feel like I've really gotten a sense from what you said of art and imagery as a sort of communication with the beyond. Yeah, and maybe just coming around circle again and just saying about the magic the magic dimension really had a sense of magic for this past hour or so we've been talking. Thank you. And thanks to all of you as usual for listening to the podcast, hearing these amazing magic stories that just manifest themselves, like beings themselves, stories becoming beings, beings becoming stories. It's a real privilege to get to have these conversations and to know that you get to hear them. We hope it helps wherever you are in whatever way that looks like for you. As usual, people are bearing you in mind imaginatively. Hopefully you're doing that too and we're making a community despite all of the challenge, through all of the challenge. You can join us online pretty much most days to meditate. You'll find all the details at thebuddhacenter.com slash toolkit. You'll also find lots of great Dharma resources, other stories and voices to hear just to support you through the weirdness that's going on. And be well, be safe. We hope you find your own magic path through the wood and we'll see you again soon. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.